Good morning. We're uh, getting a little bit of a late start. If I if I push it on the the back side here, you guys please uh, show a little forbearance to uh, Philip and Sunday school teachers to give them a little extra time at the end of their of their uh, uh, teaching. Um, I had uh, originally expected to cover verses. 12 through 21 of chapter 5 in one shot, one message. <laughs> but there is so much here that's of foundational importance uh, that I decided to break it up into at least two and maybe even three messages. Um, I should say at the outside that I firmly believe that verses 12 to 21 are a unit and that they, they must be taken uh, together. So uh, as we work through the passage, I'll be careful to tie these messages together and in context. Now, if uh, did we get the handouts distributed? Good. Um, I think those will help you follow where I am as we move through this message, and I'm going to try to make that a regular part of the messages. Um, now, a lot of what we're going to see this week and at least next week <laughs> is going to seem to some of you at first like old hat. Uh, like stuff that you learned when you were in Sunday school. But I urge you to look hard and to look anew at what Paul says in this passage. Not because I have something new to present, but because the things that he diligently sets before us in Romans 5 verses 12 to 21 go to the very heart of a biblical worldview. This passage tells us critical things about the fundamental nature of man, about the greatest need of mankind, and about the amazing gift that perfectly satisfies that desperate need, the greatest gift ever given. It tells us about the unimaginable destructiveness of sin and the domain of darkness and death that is presently in effect in this world. It tells us about the incomparable gift by which God has not only overcome the destruction caused by our sin, but has ushered in the reign of life and grace and righteousness through Jesus Christ. Above all, what this passage is about is the superabundant grace of God in Jesus Christ. The grace by which we who deserve only death have obtained life. And the grace that God has commissioned us as His ambassadors to bring to a world that desperately needs to know that grace more than it needs anything else. Now, there's a stark contrast in this passage between the one transgression of Adam and the one act of righteousness of Jesus Christ. And there's also a stark contrast between the world-changing effect or impact of those two acts. Before Paul analyzes that contrast in detail in verses 15 to 21, he first begins by laying out in verses 12 to 14 the transgression of Adam and the cataclysmic outcome of that transgression. That's where we'll be today in verses 12 to 14. Now before we pray and dive into the text, I want to show you the four main divisions of this larger passage, verses 15 to 21, as I see them. The two terms transgression and gift pervade this passage. They occur multiple times and they form the essential contrast of the passage. 
So for the title, I'm calling this larger passage, Adam and Jesus, the transgression and the gift. Uh, the first division of the text, as I see it, is verses 12 to 14, in which we see that the origin of sin and the reign of death came about through one man. Second, how Adam and Christ are different. Verses 15 to 17, the free gift is not like the transgression. And then verses 18 and 19, how Adam and Christ are alike. And we'll see that the way they are alike is that that which each of them did affected many. And then in verses 20 and 21, we'll see what Paul says about the superabundant reign of grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now this morning we're going to focus our attention just on that first of the four points in verses 12 to 14. Here is the, the breakout. This is what's on the paper that we handed out this morning. The breakout of this passage, these three verses. First in verse 12, the origin and universality of sin and death. And there are three things we want to look at in that one verse. Sin and death came through one man, Adam. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And lastly, all of mankind sinned in Adam. In verses 13 and 14, death reigned through sin even before the law. We'll see that even without the law, men are condemned by their sin because they sin willfully. Uh, we'll also see that what Paul says about the reign of death. And then lastly, at the end of verse 14, Paul introduces where he's going with the rest of the passage by declaring that, that Adam is a type of the one who was to come. He's a type of Christ. We'll talk about what that means. All right, here's the passage. Romans 5, we'll start with 12 through 14. We're going to read the whole thing through 21. Uh, if you would, stand for the reading of Scripture, please. Romans 5, beginning at verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, uh, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, 
As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression, that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dear Father, You have things to tell us in this passage that are of exceedingly great importance. Things that we need to know in order to truly understand the magnitude of the gift that You have given to us in Jesus Christ. There are some things here that are hard for us to accept. Humble us, Lord, and open the eyes of our hearts to see and receive all that you declare to be true. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, the first major idea that Paul addresses in this passage is the origin and universality of sin and death. He begins the passage in verse 12 with the word, therefore, which ties the passage back to what he's just said in verses 1 through 11. I believe he's pointing back most directly to the promise that we who have been justified shall be saved from the wrath to come. Uh, That's a promise that he laid out in verses 9 and 10. Now, the passage we're about to examine is going to tell us much more about how we came to be objects of the wrath of God and about the gift by which we have not only been prevented from that wrath, but delivered from the realm of death into the realm of grace and life. He starts this great passage by introducing the first half of a comparison that he doesn't actually complete until later on. In, uh, I think in verse 18 and following. That's why most English translations uh, actually put a dash at the end of verse 12 because Paul started a thought that he doesn't finish until later. But Paul certainly had a good reason for structuring this passage the way he did, so we're going to do our best to stick with his flow of thought. Uh, he first tells us that sin entered into the world through one man. And of course, that man is Adam. And with Adam's sin, death entered the world as a consequence or curse of his sin. Uh, Paul's entire argument regarding how sin and death came to be and regarding the impact of sin and death on all of God's creation is very directly tied to the biblical account of Adam and Eve in Genesis. Uh, Now, I'm going to assume that you're all reasonably familiar with that account, with the creation account and with the account of the fall of Adam and Eve in in, uh, chapter 3. But if any of you are not, I urge you to to carefully go home and examine that passage so that you'll understand the context of what Paul is saying here. For now, I want to point you to a couple of very important things about the Genesis account that I believe bear directly on where Paul is going here in Romans 5. The first is that God in Genesis gave, uh, according to Genesis, gave Adam a very specific command. 
not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with that command, God, Adam, God gave Adam a very specific warning. He gave him a command and a warning. The warning told him that uh, what would happen if he violated the command. In the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So when Adam violated the command, he did so with clear knowledge of both the command and the consequence. That's important to Paul's argument. The second thing I want to point out from the Genesis account is that when Adam first sinned, the essence of that sin was that he rejected the truth which God had clearly declared to him. And he believed a lie instead. The essence of that lie was that Adam and Eve could, by violating God's commandment, be like God, knowing good and evil. At the heart of it, Adam and Eve were not satisfied to humbly honor God as God and give thanks. That should sound familiar to you if you've been with us through Romans thus far. They were not satisfied to enjoy all of the amazing blessings that God had bestowed upon them in the garden, even as they enjoyed the sweetest fellowship that mankind has ever known with God. Instead, they exalted their own understanding over the explicit Word of God and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, I'm deliberately borrowing language from Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, because I believe it's very important to recognize the connection between what Paul has already said about the essence of mankind's sin and what Genesis tells us about the essence of Adam's sin. They are one and the same. Now, I'm going to ask you to indulge me with one really important rabbit trail before I go any further. Everything Paul says in this chapter depends on the historical accuracy of the account in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. It should be pointed out that if you reject the historical validity of the creation account and the fall of Adam in Genesis 1 through 3 and make all that out to be some kind of allegory or worse yet, a myth, you destroy Paul's entire argument in this great passage in Romans 5. And not only that, you destroy the arguments of numerous other critical passages of Scripture, including much of the direct teaching of Jesus Christ. And in the process, you destroy the foundation of everything that the Bible declares to be true about the origin of sin. First, about the origin of the universe and everything in it. About the origin of sin about the impact of sin on our relationship with God, about the reason that evil exists in the universe, about the desperate need that every man has for redemption, and about God's promise to reconcile men to Himself through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan under His foot. In short, if you reject the historical validity of the Genesis account, you nullify all that the Bible says about God's plan of redemption in Jesus Christ and about why that plan of redemption was necessary in order for men to have life. And that's not all. <laughs> there are a few other worldview-defining matters that depend on the trustworthiness of the Genesis account, like the uniqueness of men among all created beings as the bearers of the image of God, 
God's divine assignment to man to act as his agents in exercising dominion over his creation. God's design for marriage and sexual fidelity. The basis for the biblical distinction in roles between men and women. And the basis for the Sabbath rest. If you deny the historical validity of Genesis 1 through 3, you deny the entire biblical worldview. And you might as well throw your Bible away. Because unlike many books that claim to have spiritual value, the Bible isn't just a set of philosophical or religious beliefs. It is the unique revelation regarding the character of God who created all things and regarding His miraculous intervention in His creation in the past, present, and future to accomplish His perfect will. If you take the history out of it, you're left with nothing. That's exceedingly important. Three books I read when I was a very young believer by Francis Schaeffer. Genesis in Space and Time, The God Who is There, and He is There and He is Not Silent had a huge impact on me as a very young Christian because they convinced me that you can't take the history out of the faith. Um, and that that's, that's, that's enormous in terms of what sets the truth apart from the lies. Okay. All right. Big rabbit trail down. Having declared that sin and death came into the world through one man, Paul proceeds in the second half of verse 12 to tell us what happened with the issue of sin and death after Adam. He says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 12 taken by itself might seem to imply that it's possible that some men would not have sinned uh, and therefore would not have died. In other words, if death spread to all men because all sinned, then maybe if some didn't sin, they wouldn't have died, right? But when we take verse 12 in the context of the entire passage, it's clear that when Paul says, because all sinned, he is not saying that our association, association with Adam is limited to the fact that we did what he did. He's making a much stronger connection between our sin and Adam's sin than merely saying that we're guilty of repeating Adam's sin. In fact, in verse 14, he specifically says that those who existed between the time of Adam and the time of Moses did not sin in the likeness of Adam. Because unlike Adam, they did not have an explicit commandment from God to disobey. So at least some of mankind didn't sin exactly the same way Adam did. But as we'll see shortly, God says they are nonetheless sinners. Paul is almost, Paul is most certainly saying that all men have sinned. That is, there's no dispute. He made that crystal clear in chapter 118 through chapter 3 verse 20. And he stated it very succinctly in Romans 3.23 that many of you know by heart. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He makes it equally clear here in Romans 5.12 when he says death spread to all men because all sinned. But throughout the passage in verses 12 to 21, Paul makes it painfully clear that Adam's sin had a universal and catastrophic impact on all of mankind. That one sin, not just on mankind in a general sense, but on every individual person who has lived since Adam. 
Now I'm going to cheat a little and, and look ahead briefly to show you five statements from verses in, in uh, 15 to 19 that drive home what I'm convinced Paul is saying in this passage. First in verse 15, by the transgression of the one, the many died. Verse 16, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Verse 18, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to whom? To all men. Verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, I know I've taken those, those statements out of context, uh, but I'll, we'll be very careful to, to see them in context as we proceed next week. Each of these statements tells us something very important, and if we put them together, here's what we come up with. First, we all became sinners when Adam sinned, verse 19. Second, all of us died because Adam sinned. All of us stand judged by God and condemned as a result of Adam's sin. And because of Adam's sin, death reigns over all of mankind. When we put all this together, I believe it's absolutely unavoidable to conclude that all of mankind sinned in Adam. When Adam committed the first sin, he did so as the representative of all of mankind. And God holds all of mankind accountable for Adam's sin. It's no coincidence that the Hebrew word Adam, Adam, is used in the Old Testament to refer to mankind. In Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, which Jimmy read this morning, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It should be clear that the term man is being used corporately and the word is, in every case, Adam, Adam. In Genesis 8.21... When God made the covenant with Noah never to destroy the earth again by water, he said this, And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Again, in that passage, both instances of the word man are Adam. Adam. In another foundational passage, in Deuteronomy 8, after Israel had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because they failed to trust in God's promises and God's provision and to obey His command, Moses said to them, And He, God, humbled you and let you be hungry, and He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He, may make you, he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Again, both occurrences of the word man, are Adam. Now, this is not a coincidence. <laughs> By the way, there, even though there are things 
uh, about Eve's role in the first sin that tell us a lot about how sin uniquely manifests itself in women. Eve's name is never used in the Bible as representative of all mankind the way Adam's name is. That's, uh, there's a reason for that. Eve isn't the head or representative of mankind. Adam is. Uh, and by the way, even though Eve sinned before Adam, the focus in Genesis 3 is clearly on Adam's sin, not Eve's. Not just in Genesis, but throughout the, the rest of the Bible. Adam was not simply the first man, but as the first man, Adam was the representative of all mankind. Uh, and all mankind participated in Adam's sin. When Adam turned his back on that which God declared to be true and made himself the arbiter of truth, we were there with him. All of mankind was condemned by his sin. Not only did we all sin after Adam, we all sinned in Adam. And as I see it, we are thus doubly condemned. Now, I know and you know that this is all quite contrary to man's way of thinking. <laughs> we have a really hard time accepting that this is how things should have played out. Our sin nature looks at all this and says there is no way you and I can be held accountable for what Adam did a couple of thousand years ago. But God says we are. He says that you and every man, man who ever lived was condemned when Adam sinned. But he doesn't stop there. He says you and every man who ever lived were made sinners when Adam sinned. Now, the word sinners in 519 doesn't just describe what we do. It describes who we are. Uh, the sin of Adam corrupted the very nature and essence of every single person who has lived since Adam. Uh, <laughs> we, we, don't, uh, we don't like any of this. We say, if Adam's sin guaranteed that we would sin, then shouldn't he be the only one who's punished? He made us do it. <laughs> God emphatically says, no. The fact that you inherited your sin does not excuse you from accountability for it. And like it or not, uh, it doesn't remove our account accountability for the sins we commit now or for the sin that, that we committed in Adam. Now, God makes no apologies for shaking up our categories uh, or our sense of fairness <laughs> so dramatically. And please hear me when I say this. It is arrogance and foolishness for us to think that he owes us either an apology or an explanation. Our problem is not that God has been less than straightforward about how we came to be condemned. Our problem is that we don't like his answer. <laughs> if we do not have the humility to allow God to tell us what's true about the origin of our sin in Adam, and about the accountability that we nonetheless bear because we are all sinners, then we will never submit to the truth about His solution to our sin. By the way, 
Uh, we'll look hard at what Christ did to address this catastrophe next time. But I'll jump ahead to make one other point. If you cannot accept the fact that Adam acted as your representative in sin, then how can you accept the fact that Jesus acted as your representative in atonement? If you accept God's gift of justification and the life that was accomplished by Jesus Christ acting in your place, then why is it such a problem for you to accept that Adam sinned in your place? Both sides of that paradigm are crucial to the way the rest of this passage plays out. We'll look at it in much greater detail as, as we proceed. All right. The second main point here that I want to see, want us to look at in this passage is that death reigned through sin even before the law. In verses 13 and 14, Paul turns aside to explain further what he just said in verse 12 about the universality of sin. And he introduces the idea of the reign of death, R-E-I-G-N, not the reign that we've got going on outside. This will become an important part again of the contrast that he goes uh, goes on to set up in the following verses. In chapter 5, 13 and 14, he says, until, until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. The word translated imputed in verse 13 is related to, but is not the same word as the word reckoned that Paul used over and over in chapter 4. When he was talking about uh, God reckoning faith to us as righteousness, counting it to, to crediting it to our account, and imputing His own righteousness to us. Uh, the, I, I, I'm convinced that what Paul is doing, what he's saying here in 5.13, is very much like what he was saying back in 4.15 when he said, where there is no law, neither is there transgression. As we discussed when we looked at chapter 4, the word transgression in 4.15 is not the same word as sin. To transgress means to exceed a boundary. And it implies that you know what the boundary is that you've exceeded. Sin, on the other hand, is any violation of God's character. All transgression is sin, but not all sin is transgression. Now, the Jews did have the clear and explicit commandments of the law, and they transgressed those boundaries nonetheless, just like Adam. And at least part of what Paul, what I believe Paul is getting at here is to point out yet again that the Jews' knowledge of the law makes them particularly culpable. We're all guilty. The Jews have an additional element of culpability before God because they had the knowledge of the law. But lest the Gentiles in his audience think that this means God didn't hold them accountable for the sins they committed before the law was given, verses 12 through 14 spell out that both sin and the curse of sin were in full bloom from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed 
where there is no law. The first half of that verse is as important as the second. For until the law, sin was in the world. And in case that's not enough to make it clear that the sins committed prior to the giving of the law of Moses bear the same curse of death as the sins committed after, he immediately adds in verse 14, nevertheless, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come. Again, when he refers to those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, he's talking about those who sinned without having explicit commandments. Paul tells us here that both sin and the consequence of sin, which is death, reigned, they ruled, they were in dominion over those who lived between Adam and Moses, that is, even over those who sinned without the law. Now, we might think that Paul's basically just saying ignorance of the law is no excuse. We all know how that works, right? Uh, if you miss the speed limit sign as you're coming down Beltline when it changes from 35 to 30 and you get pulled over and the officer is standing outside your window writing you the ticket and you say to him, but, but officer, I didn't see the sign. He just grins and keeps writing the ticket. Because ignorance of the law does not excuse you from accountability to the law. But I don't believe that what Paul is saying in, in these verses uh, is justified or, or uh, covered or taken care of just by that analogy. Because if you look at the whole context of chapters 1 through 5, it is not possible to conclude that those who lived after Adam but before Moses had no basis for knowing what sin was. Paul began his whole discussion about the universal sinfulness of man by saying in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature, His eternal power, and His divine attributes have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. See, we're at, we are without excuse not because God holds us accountable to His law, whether we've been exposed to it or haven't, but precisely because at the most fundamental level, we have all been exposed to it. Romans 1.32 He said, Although they know the ordinance of God, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. This is after he listed all the, the uh, manifestations of a depraved mind and degrading passions. He says, they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I believe that's why Paul is able to say in Chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In that passage, just as in Romans 5, Paul says that those who sinned without the law still sinned. And they still suffer the curse of sin, which is death. So at the most foundational level, the curse for violating God's holy character 
is universal because the knowledge of his essential character is universal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all know it, whether we admit it or not. The last uh, major point in this, in this portion is uh, the reign of death. Paul says in Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even as it has continued to reign in this world ever since the fall of Adam. Uh, there's no reason to conclude, by the way, that he's saying death stopped reigning after Moses, <laughs> that is, after the law was given. Uh, I believe what he's doing in verse 14, he's just zeroing in on the period of time between Adam and Moses so that he can deal with that issue of what happened with those who did not have the law. Not only does Paul not say that the law cured the problem of sin, he's going to go on at the end of this chapter to very directly make the point that the law made things worse. Uh, the law actually exacerbated or made worse the problem of sin. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. Now, I want to, at this point, dig a little deeper into what Paul means by the phrase, death reigned. I don't believe he's merely pointing out that everybody dies. Now, that's certainly true, both physically and spiritually. But when Paul talks about the reign of death, I believe he's speaking in a much broader sense. The word reign is from the root for the word king or kingdom. And it implies dominion and a domain. I think we get a glimpse of what he means in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Death is the course of this world. The entire world system that has existed since the fall has been dominated by death in all respects. The death that entered the world through Adam's sin corrupted everything, not just people. The curse of the fall extended to every part of God's creation. And the cure to the curse will extend to every part of God's creation. This is clear in Romans 8, verses 18 to 22, when Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. I think one of the most amazing things about that passage is that that which frees creation and restores creation is when God glorifies us. In both the Old Testament and the New, the curse of death is pervasive. And the reign of death affects everything both in us and around us. Death is manifested in every form of violence, decay, corruption, 
and illness that we behold in nature. When the bagel that became a dresser ornament in your teenager's bedroom or the two-month-old bowl of ramen that got shoved under his or her bed gets all green and fuzzy, that's just one of millions of manifestations of the curse of death that came about because of sin. That may sound to you like a trivialization of something that's really important, but I believe it's entirely relevant to this notion of the reign of death as it's presented in Scripture. The association between the curse of death and even common forms of decay like mold and mildew are very tied to what went on in the law. When someone's house had mildew on it and then it was cleansed of the mildew and declared to be clean, a priest would come and he'd check it out and if it were indeed declared clean, then there'd be a ceremony. And that ceremony was a ceremony of blood atonement that included the slaying of a bird as a guilt offering. A guilt offering for mildew? The whole ceremonial system associated with the camp of Israel and withdrawing near to the, to the presence of God at the tabernacle was a picture. It was a foreshadowing of the victory over the curse of sin that would be won by Messiah. When an Israelite came to the tabernacle, to the place in which God met with His people, that Israelite had to ceremonially set aside everything associated with the curse. Death, decay, corruption, impurity, illness, those things had to be set aside because they have no place in the presence of God. Indeed, I believe that much of what Leviticus says about the ceremonial and sacrificial laws about cleanness and uncleanness that we find hardest to understand makes a whole lot more sense in this light. The reign of death that came about through the transgression of the one man, Adam, is an all-encompassing reign. And the redemption that has come about through the one, Jesus Christ, will ultimately destroy the reign of death and will prove to be an all-encompassing redemption that affects not merely men, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, but all of God's creation. That's why, as Paul says in Romans 8.19, the anxious longing of creation awaits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Why does it matter to you to uh, know what God says about the reign of death? Well, if you don't understand how absolutely the sin of man has impacted everything you see around you, you will misinterpret what you see around you. Now, I want to talk for a moment about something that's hard for me to say and harder for my family to hear. But I can think of few things that have burned this awareness into my mind and heart more forcefully, so I'll ask my family to forbear with me for a moment. When my children were quite young, we had a little dog named Rascal. A few of you have heard this story. He was the coolest dog I've ever known. He was full of life. He loved everyone he met. He was more fun than a barrel of monkeys. And one night when I was stuck at a client, I was in the IT business, I was stuck at a client until the wee hours of the morning working on a down file server, and I was on the phone with Microsoft. Debbie and the kids were at a neighbor's front yard across the street. My son Jeff was holding Rascal on a leash, and the large dog behind the neighbor's fence jumped the fence and came toward Jeff and Rascal very aggressively. 
That set Rascal off, and he started barking very furiously. That big big dog grabbed our little dog, and he tore into him like a rag doll. And Rascal died. Now I know there are much more grievous things that some in this body have had to suffer than that. One family that was a part of our church many years ago suffered the death of a teenage son by an act of senseless violence. And that son had done nothing wrong. The death of a dog pales by comparison. But Rascal's death had a profound and lasting impact on my family. It even had a profound and lasting impact on me, and I wasn't there. When I tried to talk to my kids back then about why such a thing would happen, about why God would allow such things, I know they weren't satisfied with my answer. But I stand by that answer. And I can boil it down to two words. Death reigns. And if I want to find someone to blame for the evil and the pain and the injustice that I see all around me, I need not look any further than myself. Because I am every bit as guilty as Adam. And even though I'm not the one through whom mankind was condemned, I might as well have been. I have no doubt that if I had been in Adam's place, I would have done at least as badly as he did. I have done just as he did. I sinned in Adam, I sinned after Adam, and I sinned in the likeness of Adam. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And death reigns because of Adam's sin and because of your sin and because of my sin. If we truly understood the magnitude of our violation of God's holy character, we would never have the arrogance to ask God why He allows evil. We would only thank Him for redeeming that which we have so grievously corrupted. Next week, we're going to look at what Paul has to say about the cure for that curse. And it is a glorious gift indeed. Paul introduces that gift with a little clause at the end of verse 14 that is theologically loaded. It refers to Adam and it says that he, Adam, is a type of him who was to come. Now it's important, I'll be very brief here, but it's important for us to understand what Paul is saying here because it sets the stage for everything else that he says in verses 15 to 21. The word type in the New Testament means a precursor or a foreshadowing of something that will come later. Adam is the type and Jesus is the fulfillment or antitype of that which Adam foreshadowed. Paul's use of the word type tells us immediately that there is a very important connection between Adam and Jesus Christ. And he's going to present that connection for us in verses 15 to 21 as both a comparison and a contrast. Uh, that's what we'll be looking at next time. If you're here today and you are still playing with the idea 
that the magnitude of your sin is not sufficient to condemn you. The reality is you were condemned before you were born. Because you were born in Adam. And you bear His sin. I know that's hard to grasp. It's hard to accept. I know there's a lot more to say than just that. But that's that's the way God presents the beginning of sin, the origin of sin. And not only did you sin in Adam, but again, death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, both in and, and since in. If you're still counting on yourself to make yourself right with God, it ain't going to happen. Loving Father, uh, we must know something of the magnitude and impact of our sin in order to truly know the surpassing greatness of Your grace toward us in Jesus Christ. I pray that if there are any here who are still clinging to the notion that uh, their sin isn't bad enough to condemn them, that they would abandon that idea today and they would recognize their desperate dependence upon You to provide a solution to their condemnation. And then they would cling to Jesus Christ as their representative at the cross. The One who bore in His body our sin upon the tree that we might receive the righteousness of God as a free gift and stand before You spotless and blameless for all eternity. Never because of what we have done, but only because of what He did for us. I ask that us, all of us who already know Jesus Christ would be stirred by thinking about all this, Lord, and that we would be moved to greater gratitude and to more complete obedience. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.